From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Thanks for tuning in. The town of Liberty, like so many other municipalities across upstate New York, has seen its share of hard times. Following the collapse of some of its largest employers at the end of the Borscht Belt era, like Grossinger's Hotel that once famously occupied its own zip code, Liberty struggled. Poverty rates are 50% higher than those of the rest of New York State, with one in five kids and nearly one in four seniors living below the poverty line. Nearly a fifth of the population has not achieved a high school diploma or GED. And the population was slowly declining for most of the last 30 years. But today's episode is not a story about the woes of an upstate New York town. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Because not only have there been some exciting bright spots in the data here lately, like the population of Liberty jumping by 32% since 2019, and the countywide unemployment rate dropping below 3% at the end of 2022 for the first time, well, since anyone started keeping county-level unemployment statistics, but there's also some really exciting innovation happening here on a community level. And that's what I want to talk about today. We're talking about two Liberty-based organizations that are playing pretty significant roles in supporting the Sullivan County community in their own unique ways. Sullivan 180 and the Youth Economic Group. And I particularly wanted to focus on these organizations because both of them are at turning points right now. So in the first half of this episode, I'm going to talk to... Denise Frangipani. I am the Chief Executive Officer for Sullivan 180. One of the reasons I sat down with Denise the other day is because Sullivan 180 just brought another well-known local name, Sullivan Renaissance, under its umbrella, where Denise had worked since Renaissance's inception in 2000. Both of these organizations have historically worked to improve the county in meaningful, but different ways. Sullivan Renaissance focused on beautification efforts, community development initiatives, and education and outreach programs, while Sullivan 180 honed in on healthy living and wellness in the area. So I wanted to know why they decided to combine. It's interesting because it wasn't really a merger, right? So Sullivan Renaissance was always an initiative of the Gary Foundation. It never existed legally as an organization with its own 501c3 or structure. We were really the philanthropy arm of the Gary Foundation. We were the the way that they branded their grant making in Sullivan County, aside from the other things that they do, because they built Bethel Woods, they fund uh, a lot of medical, uh, they fund at Sloan Kettering, they fund at Boston Mass, they fund Syracuse University. So they have a lot of very specific giving Basically, what we did was we brought all of the Sullivan Renaissance initiatives under Sullivan 180. So we still are doing similar work. We're just not calling it 
Sullivan Renaissance anymore. So in that regard, the brand itself, we like to say has sunsetted. So the rooster, we're not, you know, we're not running around in a rooster costume anymore. We are. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Some people are very disappointed about that. If you never saw the Rennie of the Rooster mascot before, I can only say that you have missed out. But the photos will forever survive in the depths of Google Images. We have changed our mission to really reflect the mission of Sullivan 180. They're very comparable. Our uh, Sullivan 180 came from a conversation at the Sullivan Renaissance table. You know, that's how the health initiative grew. So it, it was really kind of an evolution of both efforts into one. And Sullivan 180 was chosen as the brand or the kind of the umbrella because it does exist as a separate 501c3 with a board of directors and uh, a structure in place that allows us to do, you know, to, to be autonomous in a way, but also to write grants, to bring grants into the county and to um, just operate in a slightly different way than we were as a program of the Gary Foundation. So what was the motivation for that? Mm -hmm separate fully from the Gary Foundation structure? So going back to the beginning, obviously Sullivan Renaissance was created by Sandra Gary and the Gary Foundation, Mr. and Mrs. Gary, uh, in response to a need that, that was present in the community 23 years ago. And back at that time, the issue was the appearance of the county. So our mission was built on this idea that volunteers could with support, change the appearance of the county and build community pride. And that was what Sandra's vision was. Um, that was her inspiration was to get volunteers working together and just, but to support them, to take the, um, the obstacle of resources out of the equation and really empower individuals and groups to do the work. And that grew over years so that then we found ourselves working with schools and then we were working with municipalities. And, and each year when we came back to the table as a staff and with Sandra and with our steering committee, we would look to see where, you know, what worked and where there's some other opportunities for us to use our resources. And at some point along the line, this idea of community health came forward. And it came forward both because of an experience that Sandra had in her home in, in, uh, in Florida with an organization called the Blue Zones, which were, uh, if you know the Blue Zones, they, are, um, they were founded by was Dan Butner, who was on assignment for National Geographic. And he was asked to go and to explore the most long-lived places in the world. And when he did that, he used a blue marker. This is a story. And he circled them on a map. And so they became known as blue zones. And they had some commonalities that boiled down to quality of life, healthy diet, active living, uh, strong community connection, uh, you know, family connections, a sense of purpose. Uh, wine at five, believe it or not, is, uh, is one of the principles of the blue zones. And so we, being meaning Sandra, led us to a conversation with the Blue Zones to see, could we bring that model to Sullivan County? Because they were marketing this as, we'll come to your community and help you improve your health and become a Blue Zone. So we brought them to Sullivan with several community partners and once, and they're fabulous, wonderful people at the Blue Zones. But once we got through the conversation and we were given the proposal for what it would cost, the Garys and Sandra and the group made the, I think, wise decision to say, 
we can do that and invest those resources directly into the county versus hiring what was basically a marketing company to come in and help us you know, change our story. Mm-hmm. That was happening right around the time when we started to pay as a community closer attention to the Robert Wood Johnson rankings, which we were, there are 62 counties in the state of New York. And for a very long time, we were 61. We went up to 60 at one point, and then we went back down to 61. But this year we have gone to 60 again. So those factors uh, led Sandra and the partners to think we can do something to influence the health in the county. And Sullivan 180 was born out of that conversation and was set up as its own entity so that it could apply for grants and seek funding. Because we have, um, unfortunately, Sullivan County is often, I don't want to say overlooked, but we don't always have the success in bringing resources, funds back to the county. That coupled with, I think the last statistic we saw was about 5% of funds are invested in prevention work. Most of our dollars go toward treating illness versus preventing illness. So those you know, phenomenons were things that we felt we could rally around and, and do something that maybe others weren't able to do at that time. And so Sullivan 180 was born from that. And for a long time, Sullivan 180 and Sullivan Renaissance worked in parallel. And then we started seeing we were kind of at the same meetings and we were partnering on the same projects and working with the same volunteers. And so again, Sandra had the foresight to say, we really should just bring it all under one, leverage our resources, take the best of what we're doing and push forward with a refined mission and a refined focus. And that's what brought us together. For something like health outcomes, I suspect that one of the most effective ways, at least on paper, of having a healthier community, having a community where there is is less poverty and there's just mm-hmm. more access to resources, but that comes from having a larger tax base and whatnot. So, I mean, h- how do we kind of circle that square? So that is a factor for sure. You know, there's a lot of research and, uh, and communication out there about your zip code kind of tells how healthy you are. That's definitely a factor. But if you looked at the blue zones, just to use them as a the model, they're not necessarily wealthy parts of the world. Mm. And so some of it is, you know, the climate and the general lifestyle of the people that live there. So taking that wealth is, or I should say poverty, and is what we would call a social determinant of health. So obviously health is driven by several things, environment, you know, lifestyle, your DNA, but social determinants of health are where we are focusing our work. You know, we're not, none of us on staff are doctors or nurses. We're not doing blood pressure screenings and, and things like that. There are people out there doing that and doing a really good job. What we're focusing on are some of those social determinants of health and how do you provide uh, resources to make healthy choices or healthy options more accessible to people. So that even if you don't have wealth or you don't have um, transportation or uh, we can't talk about jobs because there's a lot of jobs right now, right? Our, our unemployment rate is, is 
I think the lowest it's been in a very long time. Post-COVID, there were, are a lot of jobs. And it's interesting, the phenomenon on how people have selected to go back to work. So I think that we don't know really the impact of that because a lot of the data that that is uh, considered in rankings is two years old. So we're not looking at what's happening at this moment in time. So at 180, what we're trying to do is say, well, okay, we have the data we have the outcomes. That's what other people do. They look at you know, trends over two years, we're looking at what can we impact influence immediately. That's that grassroots piece that we are really intentional about. So just to sort of answer your question with an example, one of the things that we're focusing on is what's called empowering a healthier generation. So our new, our mission is to build a healthy community one degree at a time, We do that through people, places, and policy. And we're doing that with an intentional focus on prevention and empowering a healthier generation. So we really refined our work. Uh, So Empowering a Healthier Generation is a school-based initiative where we are working with every school district in Sullivan County, right now the public schools, to bring uh, wellness into their school communities. So we have created a program where we stipend a healthier generation advisor in every school building. And that person has committed to bringing the resources of 180 back to their school. So they can apply for a grant, know how we're fond of grants and competitions in our world. So they can apply for a grant to implement a health initiative in their school. And then every other year, there's a competition where they get additional funding and access to even greater grants. So this is going back to that grassroots. So in our schools right now, we're seeing uh, focus on outdoor classrooms, mindfulness. Um, we're seeing a focus on really looking at cafeterias and how can we bring healthier food into the cafeterias. Uh, so if you are in school, you know, regardless of what's happening at home, at least when you're in school, you can get two nutritious meals substantive meals. So that's the work that we're doing. That's the grassroots work. And then outwardly looking at those social determinants of health, we partner with the other organizations in the community who are working so hard at this, like public health and the drug task force for the county, uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension, so that we can leverage the work in the community. So there's school and then there's community. And the thread for us is the the child. So, you know, someone goes to school and then they go home. So in the community, we're working with the, um, you know, on the ONW rail trail, we're working with municipalities to enhance their public spaces, to build better playgrounds for children. You know, taking wealth and uh, income out of the equation for the work that we can do. We're, we're seeing how can you make the healthy options accessible to everyone, regardless of their status, their financial status. So in the case of, for example, with schools, I mean, how do you know that the programs that you're doing and the, and the structures that you're building in schools is actually having a positive effect? Because you mentioned at the beginning of what you were saying that you want to focus on making a difference now. And I, I was at... Sullivan West as a student when the school went through the shift, I think it was related to efforts during the Obama administration to have healthier food in schools. 
when there was a shift from pretty unhealthy lunches to uh, the school lunches became uh, much more diverse in the food that they were putting on your plate. There were a lot of fresh vegetables and fresh fruits on the plate. And I would watch as, I'd say, between 80 and 90% of students would eat whatever it was, their pasta, their slice of pizza, and then throw everything else out. Yeah. And <laughs> every single day they would go through that. Mm -hmm. And the cafeteria staff knew that was happening. And at the time, I felt like it ended up being this, this kind of charade that we were all participating in to pretend that we were following through and making the motions of, go of, of having a healthier school lunch mm -hmm. without actually getting there. And, yeah. and so how do you know the efforts you're doing don't end up in situations like this where yeah. it's not actually taking hold with students? So that's an excellent question. And that's, that is the big question mark around prevention work overall, and maybe why it doesn't get as much, you know, we're so busy putting out fires that we're not preventing fires. So, and it's always been a question about pre prevention. How do you know it's helping? You know, how do you know you've, you've prevented something from happening if it didn't happen? You don't, you never really know, but you start to look at trends. And, and so we're still a little early on to be able to really know, because we're only, we're two years in to the work in our schools. So we will have a better idea, you know, a couple of years down the line when we, when we can really look at some of that data. So we're starting to collect data and uh, so we can create measurables for our own work. So there's that. But then there's also when you start to see policy changes. See, policy changes are, are, are going to make any change sticky. When policies change, then it just pushes things forward. And it makes it easy, but it also makes it accountable. So we're just beginning that work around policy. Uh, we have some amazing superintendents, including Superintendent Sullivan West, who want this in their schools. They want to make it happen. They want it to be the culture of the school. So it will take time. Our interests or our efforts are also to, you know, go into a, a lunchroom and talk about it. Like, don't just put, I don't want to say Brussels sprouts because they are, they're just, contenders <laughs> overall, but, you know, don't just put broccoli on the plate. Let's talk about broccoli. Let's serve it in a way that, you know, when my child was growing up, if I gave him broccoli with some dipping sauce or some dressing, it was much better. He liked it better than if I gave him just broccoli on a plate and it was overcooked because that's, you know, broccoli can get weird when you overcook it. So that's the work of our program staff going into the cafeteria, working with the cafeteria staff who are excited about this. I mean, Livingston Manor is doing incredible work around farm to school and they're making their own bread in Livingston Manor. It's wild, right? So it shows the possibility. Uh, we, as a culture, have moved away from valuing what it means to actually sit down and eat. We just, we, we're on autopilot. We're kind of shoving food in our mouth so that we're not hungry. So we're filling ourselves up, but we're not really honoring what food is to us. And, and so it comes from changing how we talk about it, how we present it, uh, how we display it. So it's going to take time. In your years with Sullivan Renaissance and now Sullivan 180, because you've been with, with this organization for a long time, with the Gary Foundation for a long time. What do you see as some of the organization's greatest achievements? That's a great question. If you were to map all of the projects, you would see this incredible mosaic of, of projects. So that would be one. But 
it, within that, I think it's the the achievements are this thread of this grassroots movement of volunteers, and that's changing. You know, with twenty two years, that has changed, and the torch has been passed. So the fact that it's still going, that people still want to do it, and that it has been part of it's part of our culture. It's really a phenomenon in Sullivan County when you think about it. There's no place else that I know of that does exactly what we're doing. That every year people around the county are focused on a very specific goal and they come together afterwards to celebrate that they accomplished it. A tangible achievement or more, you know, I can say is we had always wanted and one of our um, mentors who helped us create our work, Ted Blows, who passed away a few years ago, um, he said, you need to get the municipalities involved. This can't, this won't keep going without them. And we knew that. We just weren't sure how to make it work. And then one day, Sandra got up in front of a room of 500 people at the award ceremony and challenged the municipalities that we need your help. The volunteers can only do so much, not because they don't want to do more or they're not capable personally, but their influence and their resources only go so far. So we need municipalities to take it from there. And we have had great success in that space. That's why we have a municipal grant program. Uh, very specifically, we've had several municipalities who have created positions within their structure and in their budget for they call them everything from parks coordinators to garden coordinators to beautification coordinators. So what that tells us is if we shut the lights, you know, when we taught, when we came together, everyone thought Renaissance was just going to go away and we would, it was never the vision to just abandon that work. But if for some reason we had to stop this and do something else, I think we can be very confident that for the most part, the work will keep going. I would like to encourage uh, anyone listening to connect with us on our Facebook, our social media. Um, just want to reiterate that there is a role for everyone in the work that we're doing as a community. And even if it doesn't seem obvious, but you are intrigued, just reach out to us and we'll find, we'll find something. Another organization in Liberty that's going through a period of change is the Youth Economic Group, or YEG, which is part of the Catskills branch of the Rural and Migrant Ministry. YEG was formed about a decade ago to teach local young people a variety of skills, but its signature project is a youth-led cooperative business called Bags for Justice, where teen members create designs and screen print them onto shirts and canvas tote bags, and then they market and sell them. YEG struggled to maintain its youth membership during the pandemic, but it is recently under new leadership. So I wanted to get to know him and find out more about the group. I'm Angel, I'm from El Salvador, and currently I'm studying a master's degree in people management and business management online in Spain. And how did Angel end up working with the Rural and Migrant Ministry and YEG? I didn't know anything about um, Rural Migrant Ministry or the Youth Economic Group until last um, year, on um, October, I think. 
that some member of my family, an aunt, knew that I was looking for a job opportunity or to do an internship to begin in some place here in the U.S. So she connected with this this friend that he had had worked before with rural migrant ministry, and he told me, "Why don't you come to to the U.S.?" Let them interview you. Let them know a little bit about you. So I, I was willing to take that flight, you know, from El Salvador to to here. That was on December, and I spoke to Richard Witt, that is the executive director for Rural Migrant Ministry, and he liked my profile. And well, I mentioned that I had experience working with teenagers and with working with the youth back in El Salvador, back in my local church. Back in El Salvador, when I was in college, I had to go to different um, like little towns that didn't have like enough resources to, to study or something. So the career also prepared me to, to work with these kids, to work with these families. So when I knew about this opportunity and I spoke to Richard about it, he liked my my profile, and he he mentioned that that it was going to be availability to do a fellowship in March. So he said, "Why don't you come back in March?" So that's how I began to support them here in the youth economic group as a full time researcher in this cooperative environment. So how has it been so far? How has the weather been so far? <laughs> well, it's a, a much colder than back there. But I mean, I had, I've been um, traveling back and forth for like some couple of years. I mean, mm. to Texas and Kentucky and Orlando when I was in vacation. But I only stayed like two, three weeks stops, you know, but right now, I mean, the, the experience currently, I'm living in Liberty in New York, in the Sullivan County. So up here is much colder, you know, than, than for example, uh, Texas or, or the usual weather in El Salvador that I'm used to. It's wonderful to have you here and, and doing this work Thank and you. in this role, because there are not that many organizations that are doing something as innovative as rural migrant ministries is with the youth economic group in this region. And so it, this is yeah. something that is, is such a neat opportunity for young people around here. So I really appreciate you for being a part of this yeah. and for working with, with these students. Thank you. Do you have a sense of what the history of the youth economic group is? And, and also for folks who might not be familiar with it, could you kind of give an overview of what it is and how it works? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Youth Economic Group is a nonprofit cooperative formed by young students that are part of this um, youth empowerment program from, the, um, from this rural migrant ministry that works specifically with the farm workers. So what these kids do every year in this um, Youth Economic Group is we give them a chance to make, for example, t-shirts, bags, they learn different skills for their development and the organizations support them so they can, for example, go to college, make their own money, 
and learn different skills that they will need in their future because many of these kids have their parents working on the field and those type of types of jobs so many of them doesn't have the knowledge or doesn't have the information about the different opportunities that this country can give it to them so i've talked with with several kids in some schools in this month that i've been here to learn a little bit about their their future for example how do you see yourself in five or three years or in one year for example so many students they don't want to go to college they only want to to get a job in any restaurant or doing anything they just want money but some of them doesn't know the chances that this country can give it to them they doesn't know the aids that they can apply to and so this youth economy program is an opportunity for them to create a positive change in their communities for example the t-shirts and the bags that this youth economy group have done in the past are related to some issues that they are facing in the inside the communities for example some of the t-shirts or the designs of the bags and shirts are related to bullying gun violence sexual harassment or sexual abuse drugs there are some specific issues that they are facing maybe at home maybe at their schools that they doesn't have like a, like a chance to talk about or doesn't know the right channel so this this youth economic group is because of them i mean this organization this rural migrant ministry gives them this chance for them to make a positive change so they can first of all learn skills learn um for example different um type of skills like learning any craft or bonding or empowerment of themselves how to speak to a crowd for example social skills leadership also if if some student is in this youth economic program we have a specific program that prepares them for college so basically this program is this opportunity that they can join after school because we only gather with them once a week it's like two or two and a half hours a week and they have the, this chance to make a positive impact in their communities and the and some of these students that have been working or being part of this youth economic group or the youth empowerment program in general some of them have have gone to universities like colombia so the impact of this type of program the impact of this type of um opportunity that they can that they can have is is powerful they just need to be willing to try a different activities besides going to to high school and besides um joining any other club so how does this youth-run cooperative business actually work angel says that students make graphic designs and then they screen print the designs onto bags and shirts so once a week they gather it can be in a 
in an office or in the previous years they had like a big house where they have more space to do that so they gathered themselves gathered some ideas they uh, went to some stores to buy the, the shirts and they painted or post in this canvas the design that they are making so these right currently this youth economic group has um in stock many many t-shirts with different designs that they have made in the past and also these bags for justice as they call it and recently um let me see last week last week yeah we were invited to the convention of NYSUT, that NYSUT is the New York State United Teachers Conference, that um, Bags for Justice or Youth Economic Group is an affiliate of NYSUT. So what in, the, in this activity, uh, the main thing that we did was sell, sell the t-shirts and sell the bags that we have in stock. And that is going to help to make more bags, more t-shirts, and it's like an opportunity for them to sell more because this specific program, like I mentioned before, is basically to create a model of economic opportunity. So um, in a couple of years or in a couple of months, they can gather some money so they can make a little bit more bags and t-shirts. I think that in the past years, the, uh, the the rural migrant ministry pays a little fee to these students for them to participate in this program. So these kids not only learn the, the skills that this program can teach them, but they receive, um, I don't know how much, uh, but they receive an amount so they can give it to their parents or they can use it for themselves or they can save it to go to college. So how many students are involved in the group now and where is the group based out of? Because I know they used to have a storefront in Liberty. Is that still operational? Yes, well, right now we are gathering in the Cornell Cooperative Extension. It's mainly, we have like an office, like an office where we gather and we learn different skills every Friday from 3.30 p.m. till 5.30, 6 uh, p.m. So right now we have three students and this month we are getting to recruit more students because what I have understand so far is that this program, they are looking for new students every every year because they have students that are in their senior year or in their junior year. And once they finish their high school, will they go to college or they go to a job or something? So they don't continue with the, with the program because they, they finished, right? They're like, they did not also graduate from high school, but graduate from this program too. Do students still work with the screen printing machines and whatnot? Are those located at the offices in, at Cornell Cooperative Extension now? Yes, yes, they do. They do. Right now we are last, uh, let me see, two weeks ago, they started making some new new t-shirts, but we have to buy more paintings and some other materials to, to continue doing that. 
but yes, the the materials are in the Cornell uh, Cooperative Extension. Who's eligible to join the group? And if students are interested in getting involved, how can they get involved? The, the basically the requirements is that they need to be from ninth grade to their senior year. They don't need to be sons of farm workers, but most of them accomplish this requirement, you know, because primarily this rural migrant ministry focuses on that. But of course, any any teenager can join to this type of program. And they have a webpage called backsforjustice.com. Also, they have a Instagram profile that is called Youth Economy Group and Bags for Justice. And currently, um, they also can join by sending a message in this phone number that I'm going to give it to you because um, the new participants, they need to do like a little presentation about what issue they want to change in their communities. So if there's anybody interested or any parent that is going to listen to this interview and they want more information, they can send a message to this number is 845-375-0891. And they can just text a message like, hey, I heard about this interview about the Youth Economic Program. I would like more information. And myself can call them and can we can meet in any place or I can send a message and we can begin to talk a little bit more so there kids can come to this program. Enjoy. So even though Yeg and Sullivan 180 look pretty different from one another, I love that we have both of them right near our studios in Liberty, New York and both putting the focus on supporting young people here in a really wide variety of ways. The business person and philanthropist George Eastman was once quoted as saying, the progress of the world depends almost entirely upon education. And I want to amend his words here to say that the progress of our communities depends almost entirely upon how we raise our youth. So to see this work to teach young people about health and wellness from Sullivan 180 and to provide them with hands-on leadership opportunities and tangible skills from YEG that they can use no matter where their journey takes them in life, that gives me so much hope. And I am so excited to see what's next for both of these staples in our community. Thank you so much to Denise Frangipani and Angel Burgos for taking the time to chat on today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Have a great week.